Dr. Evil, it's about the sharks. When you were frozen, they were put on the endangered species list. We tried to get some, but it would have taken months to clear up the red tape. You know, I have one simple request, and that is to have sharks with frickin' laser beams attached to their heads. Now, evidently, my cycloptic colleague informs me that that can't be done. Uh, can you remind me what I pay you people for? That is one of my favorite lines from Dr. Evil in Austin Powers' International Man of Mystery, a movie that turns a supervillain into a character that is all too human and all too hilarious. The same can be said about Starter Villain, the latest book from science fiction author John Scalzi. But there's an added twist. Some of the supervillains in Scalzi's satire sound a lot like the real-life tech billionaires that some of us love and that others of us love to hate. Greetings, Earthlings. I'm Alan Boyle, your host for the Fiction Science Podcast, coming to you from the place where science and technology intersect with fiction and popular culture. Join me and John Scalzi as we discuss the future of supervillains in the comics and in modern life. John Scalzi's books often take your typical science fiction tropes and twist them into new shapes to make you laugh and then to make you think. Red Shirts, a novel that won a Hugo Award in 2013, takes the point of view of the occupationally challenged security officers on a starship that sounds a lot like the Enterprise in Star Trek. The Kaiju Preservation Society, which is up for a Hugo Award this year, speculates on what would happen if monsters like Godzilla existed in a parallel universe that was accessible through a portal in Greenland. And Starter Villain, John's latest novel, explores the idea that supervillains are actually just CEOs who can bend the world's economies to their will, and who sometimes have to kill people. So what happens when a regular guy inherits his uncle's supervillain empire? As John told me during our chat about the book, hijinks ensue. But there are also parallels to the exploits of tech billionaires like Jeff Bezos, who rode his own company's rocket ship to the edge of space, or Elon Musk, who basically controls his own global satellite network and a worldwide social media platform. In fact, considering what Musk is up to with Neuralink, his brain implant venture, I wouldn't put it past him to order up some sharks with frickin' laser beams in their heads. Speaking of sharks, there's a chapter in Starter Villain where techies take turns giving their pitches for outlandish business concepts in a setting that is a lot like the Shark Tank TV show. So I started our Zoom session by asking John to give his best Shark Tank pitch for Starter Villain. The way that I've been describing it to people is pretty simple, which is ordinary Joe inherits his mysterious uncle's supervillainy business. Hijinks ensue. <laughs> Your book plays off uh, some of the over-the-top stereotypes associated with fictional supervillains, but it seems to me that Starter Villain is actually a parable about tech culture and the exploits of billionaires such as Elon Musk, Jeff Bezos, and Bill Gates. Am I reading too much into that? Uh, no, I don't think you are. I mean, I was... I don't want to say that I was fortunate because then it opens up a whole can of worms in terms of 
uh, the, everything being about me. But I will say that the bad behavior of billionaires in 2023 makes this book far more timely than it might otherwise have been. I wrote this about 18 months ago, so we had no idea that uh, several of the world's biggest billionaires would just be like, mask off. I'm actually a terrible person. Um, <laughs> so, you know, the fact the fact that they did, like I said, is not good news because we all have to deal with billionaires being jerks. But for the purposes of this book specifically, it certainly puts the the hijinks of the billionaires in my own book makes it feel a little more timely and perhaps even on the nose. Do you want to make any specific observations about that? Or do you want to kind of let that be left to the imagination of the reader? Well, I mean, I think we're going to leave it to the imagination. I don't want to spoil too much for people. I want them to actually read the book. But I think beyond that, um, it's just the matter of the realization that billionaires are in a completely different headspace than the rest of us, right? It's not that they're not humans. They're absolutely humans. And it's not that they don't have problems. They do have problems. But billionaire problems uh, are not the same problems that that most people have. And when I'm thinking about the billionaires, particularly in the course of this book, one of the things that I want to make uh, clear is that um, billionaires are no more noble or you know, than any of the rest of us, just by virtue of the fact that they have literally unfathomable amounts of money. In fact, that um, untethers them from so many of the concerns that that, that the rest of us have. Um, that is well worth, uh, you know, kind of a saying that I did, you know, not I don't want to say that every billionaire is a nefarious, evil person, um, but I think it's worth saying that once you become a billionaire, your particular set of concerns are so far removed from everybody else's that it's easy to lose touch of your uh, with your humanity. And it takes real effort for someone who has that much money um, to still be a decent human being. Uh-huh. But one of the interesting twists in the book is that these billionaire supervillains are actually rather tethered. Uh, you mentioned at various points in the plot that they can't just go ahead and spend all those billions or, or trillions of dollars. And so I thought that was intriguing. And, and maybe it parallels what happens in real life. You know, everybody well, says, yeah, uh, Jeff Bezos could just pay billions of dollars to do such and such a good thing, but that would require him to sell his stock in Amazon, for example, and there you go. Well, yeah, I mean, but that's also an acknowledgement. The billionaire problems are different from the rest of us. I mean, um, Jeff Bezos or Elon Musk or anybody uh, in that particular position, they are on paper worth billions and billions of dollars, but it's in stock, um, it's not accessible, it's not liquid, right? Right. Um, now, don't feel bad for them because the amount of money that they have liquid is still more money than most of us will ever see in our lives or, or more than some towns of people will ever see in their lives. So they're not hurting. But it is it is a fact of life that you can be a billionaire and become suddenly incredibly illiquid and find yourself in a really sort of almost ironic financial peril. And uh, that's kind of 
that's kind of fun to be to be thinking about. Again, billionaire problems are different from uh, the problems day to day people. A billionaire will never worry about whether or not he can pay his gas bill or his electric bill. But a billionaire can worry about all of a sudden his stock taking a dump and the because he has leveraged himself with various loans and everything else and financial vehicles, that if some of them get called in, then he may have to sell the stock that he has. And if he has to sell the stock that he has, he may lose controlling interest in a company that he runs. And that opens up a whole can of worms. Again, slightly different problems. Does being a billionaire necessarily lead to becoming a supervillain? No, I don't think that becoming a billionaire means that you're going to become a supervillain. But like I said earlier, becoming a billionaire untethers you from the basic life experience of so many people. And you don't even need to be a billionaire to be that. I mean, I I talk about the fact that, you know, I have a 13-book contract with Tor that pays me lots of money. I am incredibly comfortable. Um, and uh, I don't know how much it costs to put gas in my car anymore. Like I <laughs> uh-huh. literally just, you know, it's like, oh, my car is going on empty. And I fill up my tank and I put the, you know, gas nozzle back on the thing and I drive away and I don't even look at how much it costs because the simple fact of the matter is whatever it costs to fill up my tank of gas, I know that I have it. And that's a really tiny thing, but most people don't have that luxury. Right. They don't have the luxury of just being like, well, I know that I got that and I don't even have to think about it. And off I go. Right. That is Mm -hmm. an incredibly small example. Now, multiply that by a hundred thousand. Right. And you've got and you've got billionaires. Right. Billionaires don't worry about their gas. Billionaires don't worry about whether or not they're going to be able to afford a house. They don't worry about whether or not they're going to be able to afford their kids colleges. Their life experience is so removed from the concerns that so many of us have that relate to money that the life experience um, just sort of tethers off. And and it's been satirized by by other people. You know, there's that, you know, that famous line uh, in Arrested Development where Jessica Walter's character is like, it's one banana, Michael. How much could it cost? Ten dollars, you know, that just has no <laughs> relationship with with money uh, whatsoever. But the simple fact of the matter is, we live in a capitalist society. The vast majority of us do have to worry about money, and it shapes and warps positively and negatively, however you want to put it, um, the shape of our lives. Um, billionaires literally never have to think about that. It doesn't make them bad. It removes a layer of concerns that. of the people in the world have. And when you have that sort of uh, life experience separation, um, yeah, there's going to be discordance and there are going to be problems. Now, with that said, there is a certain class of sociopath who is really good at money. And when those sociopaths become billionaires or even a hundred millionaires or whatever, Mm. um, there's no reason for them to pretend that they're anything other than sociopaths anymore, right? They're like, why shouldn't I use the blood of young people to you know, lengthen my lifespan? Which is a literal thing that some billionaires are doing. They're like, ah, we, under- we think that 
the blood of the young will make us young too. So we are sucking the blood out of, of people uh, and putting it into our own bodies. And you're like, are you kidding me with this stuff? But they're literally doing that. And when people are like, don't you realize that this makes you more than the metaphorical economic vampires that we always knew you were? They just look at you like, so? And? <laughs> so, well, no, being a billionaire doesn't make you bad. But if you are already bad or already socially not uh, clued in, um, there is no incentive for you to change your behavior at all. Well, I was going to ask whether uh, supervillain technology has kind of gone out of date because now we do have satellites providing uh, worldwide internet uh, 24 hours a day and we've got all this crazy stuff that used to be the stuff of supervillains. Uh, arguably, even sharks with freaking lasers on their head are, are not beyond the pale. But what you just said made me think that, yes, there's still a frontier of supervillain technology. Oh, no, there's always going to be a frontier. There's always going to be a frontier of technology. There's always going to be a frontier of moral outrage, right? There's always going to be something that's beyond the pale. Now, the thing is that being a supervillain now here in 2023 is very different than like being a James Bond supervillain was in the 1960s, Right. Uh, and I address it in starter villain. I have a character note that the volcano there that they have, um, it's not like it's not like the US or Russia or China doesn't know it is there. They have satellites that cruise over it, you know, several times a day. So you can't you can't pretend that you are hiding from anybody anymore. Um, and the point of the supervillainy is not to hide, but to offer products and services that offer value to your clients who just happen to be, you know, the United States or China or some major corporation uh, so that um, that the super villainy that you do is not seen as outside, again, outside of the pale of standard business practices. It's just a thing that people do. You are offering services. And I think that's the, that's the thing is that uh, when you think of the James Bond supervillains or you think about uh, the supervillains in, in comic book movies and their nefarious plans, and you're just like, these nefarious plans don't actually work outside of the frame of this movie. It's like, I have taken over the world. OK, what are you going to do now? You've got, you know, you've got seven billion people who actually still have to go on with their lives. You know, you can't just, you know say, I am ruler now. He was like, okay, now you have to rule. Now there's some actual administration that has to get done. And this is the thing that always gets me about, you know, the supervillains. They want to rule the world. It's like, okay, but when you rule the world, what are you going to do with it? Right? There's only one super uh, hero movie that actually just barely touched on that. And that was Superman 2, when General Zod takes over the world. And at some point you have the scene where he's he and his two hench people are just like bored out of their mind. It's like, I rule the world and I'll rule it tomorrow too. They've realized that they've like, <laughs> they've won and, and they hadn't thought it through that far. Right. Um, so I don't think uh, true super villainy is going to be something where you take over the world. I think true super villainy is the ability to make uh, the world pay you for all the awful things that 
one group of people wants to do for another group of people, whether or not they do that or not, you know, mm-hmm. they, you still happen to be the person they go to when nefariousness needs to happen. Now I'm feeling like the supervillains have won in real life. Do, do you get that feeling? No. And um, I mean, the thing is, yeah, there have always been awful, comma, rich people among us, right? Um, you know, there were 120 years ago, you had the robber barons of the Gilded Age of the United States, and they were in shipping and they were in railroads and they were in newspapers. Um, and today's are in technology and communications and, uh, you know, other things like that. So what we are seeing is not that different from what has happened before. You can do it. And you don't even need to go back to the Gilded Age. Before capitalism became a thing, you still had nobles who were, you know, ridiculously rich and, and tweaking things to their own desires. There's the there's the uh, famous phrase rich as Croesus. Mm-hmm. Croesus lived more than uh, you know more than a thousand years ago. So the incredibly rich and you know people poking their nose in everybody else's life has always been with us. Is this you know are they the triumph of evil? No, they are the triumph of venality, and venality has always been with us. There is no behavior that we are seeing now that has not been experienced before. We recognize it as being awful because we have to live with it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but today's Musks and Bezos are very, very similar to the Vanderbilts and the Rockefellers, right? There is a whole lot uh, in common up to and including you know, monopolies and, you know, crushing competitors and weird, weird personal behavior. I mean, we all remember Howard Hughes at the end of his life with, you know, Kleenex boxes on his feet and jars of urine just hanging out. So for every bad action that we see now, we can go back to history and see previous actions. It doesn't excuse it, right? It's not saying like, ah, you know, it's our edition of The Billionaire. But at least it's the understanding that in the societies that we have constructed, the way that we have constructed them, there are always going to be people who seem to have a surplus of money and or power. And those people are always, always removed from the day-to-day concerns of the lives of others to such an extent that they're completely removed. And that can feel like evil. And sometimes it is. Well, we've been talking a lot about villainy, but I do want to get across the idea that this book is really hilarious. It's it's really funny. <laughs> you have a, you have a lot of fun with it. Uh, and tell me a little bit about that and uh, the cartoony way that the villainy turns out. Uh, really inspired by you know <laughs> more like Austin Powers than by James Bond, I would say. Well, you know, one of the things that I wanted to do is, you know, like I said, the examination of the tropes of what it means to be a supervillain, right? The way that that works is by giving it sort of a context, um, by making it understandable. And especially when you're doing a novel as opposed to a movie. In a movie, you've got two hours and want to make people laugh and there's going to be explosions and all that sort of stuff. Whereas a novel, they're likely going to read it 
over a couple of days at at least, probably longer, depending on their lives. And so they have more time to think about it. And so you have to put more thought into the plausibility of it. So what I really enjoy doing is taking the supervillain tropes, whether they're from James Bond or Austin Powers or whatever, and trying to make them plausible. So like, for example, and this is an example that I give a lot, the volcano layer. Mm-hmm. Now we all know that supervillains have volcano layers, right? Um, but what is the practical purpose of having a volcano lair? And when I've been talking about this book prior to it coming out, I would, you know, uh, at, at conventions or book festivals, I'd be like, you're a villain. Why do you have a volcano lair? And some nerd would always raise their hand and go, oh, oh, geothermal power. Right. Um, <laughs> and that's exactly right. If there's the really good reason to uh, have a volcano lair is that you have this access to this immense amount of power that is just naturally occurring, right? And so you start looking at all the aspects of superhero, supervillain trips, and you start putting the plausibility on it. And then once you put the plausibility on it, then you have to start thinking about all the plausible functions. How do you get minions? How do you convince them to go to the volcano island? Um, there aren't that many like uh, people who are, you know, it's like, oh, I'm I'm here for the pure evil and also the silver lame jumpsuits. It's like, no, you actually <laughs> you actually have to have a coherent and and sensible reason for people to go to this island. And and so for you know this particular book, it is it's not that it's a supervillain lair. It is that it is a tax advantaged research hub for the lower Caribbean, right? And mm-hmm. that makes perfect sense. It's like, yeah, I can. you want me to uh, go and do my research in a tropical paradise? Yes, I will do that. You know, do I, you know, and then just sign me up for that. So like I said, for me, the fun of doing a book like this is to take an absolutely ridiculous premise um, and then make it at least sound reasonable. And I did it with the previous book that I had right before this, which is the Kaiju Preservation Society, where you had Godzilla-sized monsters and the scientists who researched, did research on them, right? And finding out the reasonable ways of saying, how do Kaiju, 300 feet tall monsters, uh, exist without breaking the square cube law, you know, and, and having fun with that. And of course, you know, the real nitty gritty nerds will be like, I don't think you actually answered that. And, you know, it's like, no, I didn't. I gave you just enough so that if you're a, you know, a true nerd, you can go and then make some plausible connections for how you think that's going to work. But that's a lot of the fun for me writing these sorts of books is to make it seem almost like, well, you know what, that could actually happen in the real world. Is there something that you wrote in specifically for nerds like me to latch on to? I mean, the whole book is there, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, I know who I write for. I write science fiction. I'm not surprised, you know, that my audience is 98% nerds, right? Like <laughs> all of it is there. But, you know, but the the I will say that some of the fun for me is doing stuff where uh, only a few people get it. Um, like, for example, the island of St. Genevieve, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, where it's located and all that sort of stuff. 
Um, I've already had a couple of the people who read the advanced copies. I've had at least one person come up to me and make reference to what is actually where I have put that island. I'm not going to spoil it because, you know, I can let other nerds find it. But the simple fact that there are a number of people who are like, oh, I see what you did there, right? Just the little Easter eggs is kind of fun. I'll give another example for Kaiju Preservation Society Mm -hmm. um, because that's already been out for a year and I don't care if I spoil something. There's um, There's a flight that leaves Baltimore International Airport and goes to Thule uh, Air Force Base, which is in Greenland, right? In the book, everybody mm-hmm. gets on the thing and they fly. Well, that flight actually exists. It actually leaves every Tuesday at like 2 a.m. in the morning, and it arrives at Thule Air Force Base sometime around 6 a.m. or 8 a.m. Uh, in the morning. And so when I was writing the book, I had the entire book happen in an actual space of time from... Um, from March of 2020 to March of 2021, right? So I knew the exact date that that flight was leaving uh, when it landed. And I looked online for the historical data for the weather at Thule Air Force Base when wow. it landed. And so I had, when they got off the plane, the weather that was happening at Thule was the weather that was happening that specific day. And Literally only like two or three people who will ever read that book will have been at like Thule Air Force Base on that day. But for those two or three people, they're like, oh, my God, he got it right. Was he here? Did How did he know? <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. That's the sort of like super, super mega granular nerdy stuff that I love putting into books. Like I said, for the two people in the world who get it, it's going to be amazing. And for everybody else, it's just color. Uh-huh, uh-huh. What kinds of science fiction tales interest you the most? Uh, is there anything you're reading or that you're looking forward to uh, on science fiction front? I mean, I'm a, I'm a very small C Catholic reader. I will read just about anything. If you wanted to murder me, you would just put a bomb under a book. Um, <laughs> so as far as it goes, uh, for me, the limiting factor is not what I'm interested in, because if it's science fiction, I'm just generally interested in it anyway. Um, it really is what sort of time do I have to to read it? And right now, because Kaiju Preservation Society, but the previous book is currently nominated for a Hugo, uh, I've been catching up on the um, other finalists in the Hugo category. So I had already read The Starman by Mary Robin and Cole, which is terrific, but I've been reading uh, Legends of Lattes was Travis Baldry's. Um, None of the Night is next on the thing. Uh, so, uh, Sylvia Moreno's uh, book is there as well. Uh, and then, of course, Ursula Vernon as T.K. Kingfisher uh, as well. So those are the things that I'm reading because I want to see who else. Uh, I want to see what the rest of the field is like in terms of the Hugo. My, the thing about it is that with the exception of Travis, because this is his debut novel, uh, I've read all the uh, writers before, and I know already know they're terrific. So I'm not expecting anything less than uh, terrific books there, uh, which is great because when you're a finalist, you want your peer group to actually you want it to be a fight. You know, you want it. Yeah, you want the people who are voting to agonize over how they're going to rank the books, right? I mean, I would love to win the Hugo simply because the Hugo is nice to have. But I already have one. So, you know, you know, quite frankly, 
whoever wins, I'm going to be incredibly happy for because this this uh, graduating class of uh, novelists is just terrific regardless. So um, no matter what, I'm going to be happy. Um, and I've been happy reading reading those books. So that's what I've been focusing on recently. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I wanted to get back to this idea, maybe the future of supervillainy, because it seems to me that we're facing a lot of impersonal threats ranging from climate change to AI. And is that going to change the character of how supervillains are presented in fiction and how they operate perhaps in reality? I don't know. I mean, I wish I could say, you know, with any sort of certainty, you know, um, but just because I'm a science fiction writer doesn't mean I have a, a lead on on how the world is going to develop. Um, I always say, and other people have said it as well, um, that if science fiction authors really knew what the future would be, they wouldn't be writing science fiction. They would be playing the market, right? Uh-huh. Um, right. <laughs> so as far as it goes, the thing about existential threats like climate change and like uh, AI and like all of that sort of stuff. One, we've been saying this in science fiction and fantasy. We've been doing our part by giving people a dry run in fiction about what it's going to be like when the seas rise and swamp the cities or when the AI actually becomes artificial intelligence instead of, as uh, as Ted uh, Chang has put it, applied statistics, which is what it is now, right? Um, but the thing that about all of this sort of stuff is that when we in science fiction are talking about it, it's drama. When we are dealing with it, it is literally day-to-day life, right? Um, people don't think about the fact that, and and here for, for the folks who can't see what I'm doing, I'm holding up my cell phone. People don't think about the fact that they have a literal supercomputer with them all the time. They don't think about the fact that you have access to, uh, you know, literally all the knowledge um, that has ever existed. And you can, you can actually speak to your supercomputer in your hand and query it, and it will come up with a mostly correct answer. This is literally magic. It's like when I was a teenager to have the idea of this pocket supercomputer was literally fiction. But mostly we use it to look at pictures of cats um, and to yell at each other on social media. So every massive existential bit of technology eventually becomes day-to-day life, right? Mm-hmm. We are, we're at the point where climate change is no longer the existential threat in drama, but it is literally day-to-day life. We are dealing with the day-to-day effects. The people in Miami... Um, aren't going to all of a sudden get a tidal wave that sweeps them off Florida. What they are going to be dealing with is every king tide, um, their streets have six inches of water. And so does Venice. We are dealing with the fact that, you know, hurricanes are all of a sudden just that much more powerful and creating that much more uh, of, of an issue, right? We are dealing with the fact that we are in constant fire season now, right? It used to be just a little bit, you know, a couple of months a year, but now it's pretty much all the time. These are day-to-day things, and we have to deal with them in a day-to-day way. And when they stop, they stop being science fiction and start being part of our day-to-day life, for better or for worse, we just incorporate them in how our how our lives work. So 
I don't want to say that we've all been like, well, this is our lives now when it comes to climate change, because we still have a lot of work to do. And if we don't want it to get worse, we have to keep doing it. But we are now comfortable with the idea that climate change actually exists. Only a fool, and I say that advisedly, is still denying that climate change is happening. It is literally here and you can't ignore it anymore. And by the same token, the AI or what is passing as AI right now does represent for a lot of people like, what does this mean for my job? Will people want you know uh, to hire me when they can just use a prompt to generate something? Uh, but for most people, what basically what it is, is how well a computer can answer a question for you, right? Uh, how well uh, the AI, when you call customer service, can sort you into the right bucket and stuff like that. It stops being dramatic and it starts being mundane. And that's that's actually fascinating to me, right? The You know, I wrote an entire novel uh, or two novels, uh, uh, Lock In and Head On, where there was a world-changing pandemic. Sorry, folks, it was six years before it actually happened. I can't be blamed. But I didn't deal with the drama of the pandemic. I purposely put it 25 years after the pandemic was done, and all of the technological and social change had already been baked into the society and people dealing with day-to-day life um, in the after effects of this massive wrenching change. And that, as a uh, author, is super interesting to me, to take already a fate accomplished in terms of technology or uh, events uh, and still make the reader invested in it, even though they missed the big drama of it to deal with the day-to-day dramatic life of people who are dealing with the after effects. In Starter Villain, the book's main character uses his smarts and the resources of a supervillain to defeat other villains who are actually quite villainous. But in real life, is there a role for science fiction to provide tools or attitudes or tips for people to deal with the day-to-day villainy that they have to deal with? Or uh, is that asking too much of science fiction? Well, again, I mean, science fiction has always been about uh, the present day, using stories with a different frame so that people can approach it without feeling sort of antagonized by it. Science fiction has always addressed the fears and concerns of any generation. If you want to find out what people were concerned about uh, in any decade, read the science fiction. Uh, If you look at the late 60s, early 70s, they were worried about overpopulation and they were worried about, you know, uh, you know, the state of the world. Um, There was a spate of, uh, you know, post-nuclear Holocaust science fiction that happened during the Cold War. Right. Um, Starting with On the Beach, going all the way through Mad Max. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And all of that was addressing the specific fears uh, that people had. Um, at the time, you know, um, so any science fiction that's being written um, is going to be addressing a current audience. So, yeah, science fiction uh, literature, science fiction movies, science fiction video games, um, they're all basically a dress rehearsal for us to manage our fears. And then having used that, um, then we are uh, hopefully 
better equipped to deal with the things that we are fearing with when we have to deal with them. You know, there is some argument to be made, and people can argue with back and forth, but there is some argument to be made that one of the reasons we didn't actually let the missiles fly, right, for a nuclear war was because we repeatedly saw in fiction that the after effects of a nuclear war were going to be terrible. And sometimes it was, you know, adventure stuff like Mad Max, right, where, you know, they have all these fighting over resources, but cool, um, <laughs> you know. And sometimes it was things like Threads or The Day After, where just literally everything is horrible, right? Uh, grave, you know, um, When the Wind Blows is an animated uh, movie that does the same sort of thing. But all of that was dress rehearsal. So, yes, obviously, you know, it's like in the last several books of mine, I didn't intend this, but I have billionaires doing bad acting all the time. We have it in Kaiju. We have it in my Dispatcher series, um, which are basically sort of uh, crime noir in Chicago uh, when nobody can die, right? Um, and then we have it in Starter Bill. So yeah, I mean, super villains are on my mind. And because people will read the book, they will see basically what I, what I think about it. There is always a role for writers to essay this sort of stuff with a slightly different frame so that people get out of their head and are thinking about uh, their day-to-day problems as reflected in the literature, but they will still be thinking about those those problems of the day. So yeah, no, absolutely. There's a, a place for science fiction and fantasy uh, to be doing it. There's a place for fiction in general to be doing this. And, uh, and it will happen whether we intend it to or not. Well, after our conversation, I'm confident that you will use science fiction for good rather than super evil. So thank you so much. (laughs) (laughs) I've warned you yet again. Uh, I love that laugh. (laughs) Thank you so much. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. John Scalzi is hitting the road for a month-long book tour that includes stops in San Diego, San Francisco, Wichita, Dallas, Pittsburgh, Chapel Hill, Cincinnati, and Nashville. Check out my blog item on CosmicLog.com for more about Starter Villain and about some real-life technologies that are so far out they sound like something a supervillain would create. Thanks to John Scalzi and Alexis Sarala at Tor Publishing Group for arranging the interview, and thanks to James Emley for his rendition of the Fiction Science theme music, composed by yours truly. Please subscribe to our Fiction Science podcast, and feel free to give us a stellar rating on your favorite podcast channel. And so, until next time, this is Alan Boyle advising you to watch the skies. <laughs>